Like all preachers, I'm sure that uh, none of us want to just pick a text and preach. We like to seek God and feel we're really preaching what the Lord wants us to preach. And I'm no exception on that. And uh, when I sought the Lord about what to preach uh, today, I felt very strongly drawn to Psalm 121. So if you turn to Psalm 121, I'm reading from the NIV. It's one of my favorite psalms anyway. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. But when I read and reread the psalm, I felt the Holy Spirit bring me back to one part of one verse. And before I could settle to begin to think of preaching on it, I had to have quite a conversation with the Lord about it because I kept saying to the Lord, Lord, it'll look as though I'm being gimmicky and I don't want to preach a gimmick because the verse that the Lord kept bringing me to and which I am going to preach on because it's very difficult to win an argument with the Lord, I find, is verse 3. He will not let your foot slip. And anyone that was at the church barn dance and can see the plaster on my arm can see what I'm getting at. But uh, perhaps you'll understand what the message is when I develop it in a moment and see why the Lord wanted me to preach it. The message I've got for you this morning is when trouble comes. When trouble comes. Some render this uh, phrase or sentence, he will not allow your foot to be moved. One writer says, God would help his people by establishing them in a firm place, allowing them to stand and not allowing their foot to be moved. Now, I believe that this has a far larger meaning than my physical foot. There are many times I've had my physical foot slip from under me. For instance, one Sunday evening in Bath, uh, I was about to 
take the car or service and I parked my car on uh, in the car park opposite the church and I parked it on a hill and didn't see that uh, a patch of ice got out of the car and both my feet slipped from under me on the ice. I went flat down on my back, cracked a rib, banged my head and it was 15 minutes before I could get up. I got my phone out of my pocket as I laid there concussed and uh, rang my wife and then rang each daughter in turn. They were all in the church and why is it the ladies in my family never hear their phones in their handbags? I don't know. But I've seen others, other people, their feet slip from under them too. I remember at my uh, youngest daughter's wedding my wife's sister in her fine wedding outfit. We went for the photos in the park and um, it had, we'd had a heavy shower earlier that morning and she stood at the, stop, the top of a grassy bank in a lovely outfit and suddenly her feet went from under her and she slipped on her bottom all the way down the grassy bank. I believe it means a little bit more than our physical feet, although of course I don't doubt that if he willed it, that God could keep your physical feet from slipping from under you too. But as I said, I believe it means something more than that. Clark in his commentary says, and I've taken the liberty of translating this from what we call Old English, uh, 16th century English to current English, Forgive me for the liberty I've taken there, but it reads then like this. The foundation, God's infinite power and goodness on which you stand, cannot be moved. And while you stand on this basis, your foot cannot be moved. Barnes in his commentary says, he will enable you to stand firm. The psalmist begins this psalm by asking where his help comes from, but then decides that everything in his life comes from the Lord. Verse 2, my help comes from the Lord. Verse 5, the Lord watches over you. Verse 5 again, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all harm. Verse 8, the Lord will watch over your coming and your going. It is the Lord who is the strength of his life the foundation upon which he stands. In the New Testament, it is clear that Jesus Christ is at the center of the Christian's life, the foundation upon which we stand. 1 Corinthians 3.11 makes it clear that for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. When trouble comes, we can, where we stand becomes more important than ever. That was graphically illustrated, of course, and I can't go into it, I haven't got time, in the parable of the wise and foolish builders. So, as Christians, where we stand when trouble comes is very important. I want to say just two things this morning as I haven't got time for more. First of all, when trouble comes, 
We stand in grace. We stand in grace. Romans 5.2 Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Some, uh, I think I may have mentioned this before, but some years ago, Jean and I were asked to fly out to take the wedding of a young couple, fly out to Austria, that is, uh, who used to be in our church, and uh, we landed in Salzburg, caught a bus up into the Alps, the little town where the wedding was to take place. On the way up, we crossed, the bus crossed into Germany, my phone pinged, uh, Vodafone told me, you are not welcome to Germany. We crossed back into Austria, the phone pinged, Vodafone said, welcome to Austria. I knew at all times just where I was. It's vitally important that we know just where we are. As Christians, Paul tells us where we are, we stand in grace. Take a quick look with me at the context of this sentence. He says, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Several important words there. Justified, it's a legal term, meaning we're pardoned for all us, from all our sins. Faith is a word in the context there, meaning we must trust in Christ and his atoning sacrifice on the cross for uh, our pardon. Peace, this isn't some, in the context there, some uh, freedom from, a happy feeling from anxiety. This is a peace being reconciled with God through Jesus Christ. This is the context of what it means to have access into the grace in which we stand. Romans chapter 1 to 4 reveal the fallen, lawless state of mankind. The whole world, Paul says, stands guilty before an awesome, holy God. The world has rebelled against God and stands in judgment of, of, by God. But through Jesus Christ, through his atoning sacrifice, justice is satisfied, pardon offered through faith in Christ and can be received from him. So that we can gain access, he says, into this grace in which we now stand grace God's undeserved favor our new foundation in Christ McLaren in his uh, commentary makes a really nice little comment he says the Greek word for access that Paul uses here carries the idea of entrance into royal palaces or Lands. I love the thought here. Jean and I were in a farm cafe uh, recently with one of our daughters, and she turned to us and said, Do you know the land you're on now 
belongs to the Duchy of Cornwall. You're on Crown land. I looked up and there on the wall was a picture of Prince Charles talking to the staff of the cafe and the farm. I know now you'll correct me after if I don't say that it now would be, of course, uh, Prince William and Kate, the, the Prince and Princess of Wales. But, of course, that they hadn't changed the photo. But I, I love the thought here. Paul is actually telling us that through Christ we're standing in crown land, or if you like, sorry about this, in Graceland. Um, we don't have to pay to go to, I think it's in Texas, and go and stand in Elvis's, the late Elvis's Graceland. We're standing free through Christ in Graceland now. What's this got to do with when trouble comes? Isn't it strange? We're such fickle folk, we really are. When trouble comes, condemnation often comes with it. And when it comes, we quickly go from worshipping God as our good, good father, from being told by others or thinking ourselves that God is an angry, condemning father. Isn't it interesting in Romans chapter 7 that the Apostle Paul discusses his sinful nature and the struggle between the law of sin within him and then following that struggle in chapter 7 is the majestic Romans chapter 8 that begins with there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And goes on to say, if God is for us, who can be against us? And who can separate us from the love of Christ? We're standing in grace ground. And if you'll forgive me and allow me to mix my metaphors when trouble comes, our house will stand. Our feet will not slip. We will not be moved. We will not be condemned, for God is for us. Can I just add another thought or two under grace? I didn't know quite how to make a heading for this, so I just kind of called it heart and ministry. But let me explain what in my mind. Sometimes we forget. We forget that our standing before God, our access to him, our health, our family, our jobs, our gifts, our ministries, well, everything, they're all gifts of grace. In all these things, we're standing on grace. We don't deserve any of them. We're rotten sinners after all, except for Jesus. But if our health fails, or money gets tight, or trouble comes, 
Sometimes, sadly, we're quick to say, what's going on, God? As though we deserve those things and he's let us down. Or we have a right to them. And somehow he's failed us. Jacob understood it right when he said in Genesis 32.10, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. We are standing on grace. Then there's ministry. And please, I've never in all my years of ministry preached with any individual in mind, so please understand I'm not here either. But I want to say a bit about ministry, and I include myself in this. Confidence can so easily become self-confidence instead of God-confidence. With practice, we can become good at what we do, or we're gifted, and things come easily. And that's not a wrong thing. Thank God for gifted people. Thank God for people who become good at what they do. It's not a wrong thing. But the temptation is to forget that we're not secular performers or secular workers. Now, please hear me here. It doesn't matter if we're preachers or worship leaders or musicians, children's workers, caterers, admin, support staff, whatever we do, put the chairs out, do the most mundane things in what we do in church. You see, we are not secular workers or performers. We are all kingdom workers. And we are ministering in whatever mundane, small or large things we're doing. We are ministering the life-giving word of God to the world. And we are together battling the forces of darkness. And we can't do that on our own or in our own strength. We can't afford to step out of grace into self-confidence, from humility into pride, from dependence into arrogance. We've got to keep standing on grace. Samson was a gifted man in a very special way to be a judge and deliverer of Israel. His gift was superhuman strength. It was a direct result of an anointing and power of the Holy Spirit coming upon him. It was connected to a special covenant of the Nazarite covenant enacted by revelation at his birth. Samson, when he told Delilah the secret of his covenant of grace, uh, stepped out of that covenant of grace. And when the Philistines came upon him, he said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself. And it says he knew not that the spirit, that the Lord had departed upon him, from him. What a thing. What was he thinking? I will go out and shake myself as before. He didn't realize 
that all those years he'd been standing in grace. He couldn't do anything without the Lord. We need to keep standing in grace in all that we do for God. Whether it's small or whether it's large. We're standing in grace. If, can I say humbly this morning, we've lost our way a bit in our walk with God and our ministry, we've ceased to walk humbly before him, let's come back and stand on grace. Second point I want to make is simple too. When trouble comes, stand in God's resources. Ephesians 6, 10 to 17. I'm going to read it very quickly. Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the he heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, just stand. Stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now I read that really fast, forgive me for that. Did you notice how many times the word stand appeared in those verses? Let me save you looking through it. There were four times. Now did you notice how many times the words run and hide appeared? Let me help you. Zero. But what do we do when trouble comes, especially as spiritual forces behind it, as is in the context of that passage? We run and hide, don't we? We run and hide. Uh, um, there were zero times it appeared there, the word run and hide, but that's what we do. Now let me just tell you a little story to give you a break from me rattling on. Um, I grew up on a council estate in Norwich in the 1950s. Most of the city seemed to be covered with council estates and the one I grew up in was a very rough one. Um, it was a rough place to live and my council estate, being a large one, had lots of smaller little areas. Now you were safe in your little area because you were known in your little gangs and things. Um, but if you moved out of that smaller area on your own, you could be at risk. And one day I moved out of my area, I was passing through another area, I was 10 years old and alone. And uh, I was moving along this street and I saw the junior school bully coming the other way. But as he got closer and closer, I thought, you know, he's no bigger than me, I think I can take him. And just as I was thinking that, his 14-year-old brother came round the corner. And I thought, here comes trouble. And I was right. And you can guess which one of us ended up flat on our back. And it wasn't the bully. It was me. When trouble comes, we need the help and resources of others, but we especially need the power and resources of God. Ephesians 
six lists the armor of God. And I expect over the years you've heard some pretty great expositions of the armor of God. But I want to tell you, you're not going to hear one this morning. I want to just very quickly draw some um, thoughts from the armor of God to fit in with our subject of when trouble comes. The first one is, and I'm not necessarily doing them all in the order, but the first one I want to talk about is the belt of truth. When trouble comes, the belt of truth. Paul says, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. The devil is called the accuser of the brethren and a liar and the father of lies. Revelation 12.10 and John 8.44 respectively. I find that when trouble comes, it's very often surrounded by swarms of falsehoods and untruths or half-truths. Now, I used to like fishing a lot, and if you've ever been lake fishing or river fishing at dusk when the midges are hatching, you almost get, feel you're getting eaten alive. And you end up batting off the midges to such an extent it takes your concentration off just about everything else. Anyone experienced that? The authorized version talks about the belt going around the loins. And in what my um, children call the olden times, um, the loins were thought to be the seat of the emotions. You may have heard that said. And very often when trouble comes and half-truths and falsehoods come with it, as it's been my experience many times, our emotions run wild. And you find that panic rises and you've been driven by your emotions and you don't know what to do. And I just want to say to you, when that happens, what you've got to do is remember that you are surrounded by a belt of truth. Truth is God's gift to you because God is the God of truth. And his truth will hold you. The word of God is the word of truth. And you don't have to worry about the devil who is the accuser, he is the, a liar and the father of lies. We don't have to worry about that because our heavenly father is the God of truth. And we have the God of truth surrounding us with a belt of truth. Stand firm in the truth of our heavenly father. Don't worry about the father of lies. Worry just stand firm in the belt of truth. Let him, our heavenly father, the God of truth, defend you. And then when trouble comes, let think about the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. I put 
these two together for a reason. The helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness are together because they are his salvation and they're his righteousness. Not talking about our salvation and our righteousness, we have none. They're his. Now the helmet of salvation, the expositor's Greek New Testament, says that Paul introduces a subtle change in the Greek construction here, which means the word take has the meaning of take from the Lord. Let me quote from the expositor. Not merely take, but receive as a gift from the Lord a thing provided and offered by him. So Young's literal translation renders it, the helmet of salvation receive. Similarly, the breastplate of righteousness to quote, this is not our own earned righteousness, not a feeling of righteousness, but a righteousness received by faith in Jesus. It gives us a general sense of confidence and awareness of our standing and position. You see, one of the devil's most effective weapons against God's people is discouragement. When troubles comes, he wants to use it to discourage us. The devil even had the audacity when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness to try to put doubts into the heart and mind of the Son of God, Jesus. Listen to what he said. He said, if you are the Son of God. He was trying to make Jesus doubt who he was. I wonder, was he making him doubt his mission? Was he, did he during the 40 days and nights, because we only have a glimpse of perhaps a, a, a short window into those temptations. Did he throw at him during that time? Well, you know, during your, 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 your life on earth, one of your disciples are going to betray you. That's how loyal they're going to be to you. Another one's going to deny you three times. And when you need the most, they're all going to run away and leave you to yourself. Was he going to remind him of, of all these things and say, well, doesn't that show you what a failure your mission's going to be? After all, you know, if maybe you're not as good a person as you think you are, that sounds familiar to you. I've had those kind of discouraging thoughts put in my mind many times during my ministry and during my life and during serving God. You're going to get that discouragement. He loves to discourage you. I, uh, I, I read a book from a missionary once and uh, called Isabel Khan, and uh, she, she said how that when she was a Bible college student, another student came up to her and told her that she wasn't good enough to serve God on the mission field. And she started listing all her faults, one after the other, and uh, how she wasn't good with people and so on. And Isabel defended herself robustly and then went and told one of her friends all that had been said about her. And a friend, he said to her, he said, you know, I wouldn't have defended myself at all. He said, I would have agreed with everything she'd said. And I would have said to her, you know, I am what I am by the grace of God. But he said, he, he said, I would have said, 
But do you know, he's all I need. And I wonder if, if what Paul the Apostle said was because he'd been discouraged. He said, I am the chief of sinners, but I am what I am by the grace of God. The breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, is what Jesus gives us. Don't let the devil discourage you. And then, of course, the shield of faith, which we quench all the fire and darts of the enemy with. When trouble comes, one of the things you've got to be good at is to be quick to focus. The trouble is, we're quick to focus on the wrong thing. Let me give you one example. I haven't got long, so I'm going to have to move fast. Quick to focus. Goliath, the giant, struts out in front of the army of Israel and Saul. And everyone focuses on Goliath. And the Bible tells us what they see is one whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of brass upon his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. He had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. The staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. His spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. Someone was writing all this down for them. That's where their focus was. The focus was on the problem. David arrives on the scene. Where was his focus? Listen, he said to the giant, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will do, deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I'll give your car the, the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Where was David's focus? On God. Who stood in the resources of God, Saul or David? David did. His, he was quick to focus on God. Don't focus on the problem when trouble comes. Focus on God. And then the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. 2 Corinthians 10.4 tells us something. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. In Bible times, when an enemy came against a city, they would surround it, forming a blockade, and put up siege mounds against the walls. We have a modern term for that. We say, when trouble comes, I feel boxed in. The enemy of our soul wants us to box us in. But we have the powerful word of God. Listen to the Living Bible paraphrase of 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5. I use God's mighty weapons, not those made by men, to knock down the devil's strongholds, these weapons can break down every powered argument against God and every wall that can be built to keep men from finding him. With these weapons I can capture rebels and bring them back to God and change them into men whose hearts desire obedience to 
Christ. We have the powerful word of God. Finally, the gospel of peace. Just one closing thought on this. Acts chapter 6. A dispute arose between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. This was potentially serious trouble. Racial discrimination and disunity could have split the church wide open. But the apostles were quick to see that this trouble, as serious as it was, was not the main issue. It was a red herring. Acts 6.2 so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Matthew 28 Great Commission, is still our mandate. We must not allow anything to divert our attention away from it. When trouble comes, the devil wants us to look at the trouble and not preach the gospel. And that's exactly what happened in Acts 6-2. They wanted the they wanted the disciples to wait on tables instead of giving themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. When trouble comes, let's keep our focus. Let's make sure we do not get boxed in. Let's stand in grace, but let's stand too when trouble comes in the resources of God and serve him. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word and we pray today that you will strengthen us when trouble comes. Lord, to be men and women who stand in grace and who stand in the powerful resources of your word. We pray you bless your word to our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen.